Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, I've got something that's rolling around on the inside, and, and uh, it's, um, um, well, I'm not exactly sure what the Lord wants to do with it. I'm, I'm not sure what he wants me to do with it, but uh, I just, there's just some thoughts that I have that I want to share with you tonight about when Jesus talked about building his church. Let's start in verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elias, that's Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can I ask you a question? Put yourself in the position to, uh, that you're one of the disciples that hear Jesus say this. What's church? I think there's, um, I think there's a lot that we don't know about um, the settings in which Jesus spoke some words and, and said some things that, that caused us to miss a lot. For example, um, the, uh, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament was 400 years. There was no prophet after Malachi until Jesus came on the same. Well, John the Baptist. John the Baptist preceded Jesus by six months. But between that, those two times, between those two men, there were 400 years where God wasn't speaking to, to, to his people through anybody. Now, we do know that there were prophets in the land, but they weren't being used of God to speak to kings and the nations like they had been before. God never abandons his people. And so the 400, what's called the 400 silent years, uh, were not an abandoning on God's part of his people. But he wasn't, um, uh, well, I don't know the best way to say it. Maybe the best way to say it is the Old Testament was finished. The prophets had prophesied some things about the time period in, uh, that we know of as the silent years, the 400 years of silence. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he comes on the scene in a, in a new way with a new message. The Messiah is on the way. There was nothing that anybody could compare to with John the Baptist's ministry. There was nothing that anybody could say, oh, well, we've heard other prophets say that. They hadn't heard any prophets say anything in 400 years. I mean, John was a voice out of the, the, the middle of nowhere, literally. He came from a desert place. He was unknown, and all of a sudden he started speaking about the Messiah to come and repent and be baptized so that you can be ready for him, and people flocked to him. There was such a draw, such a supernatural pull of the Holy Ghost that multitudes of people flocked to this guy. And people would uh, come from the cities to try to figure out who was he. We've heard about him. We've heard of other people talking about him. We've heard of the crowds and so forth. Who is he? And they'd see him and they'd say, well, he doesn't look like anything. Folks, let me tell you something. It's not the outward appearance that proves what God is doing. It's the supernatural draw of the Holy Ghost that makes the difference. It's not what we look like. And I think we make mistakes. We, we want everything to be nice and we want everything to be pretty and pleasant and, and appealing and stuff like that. But you can have the prettiest people. You can have the prettiest place. You can have the prettiest church. You can have the prettiest everything that there is. If there's no anointing on it, it's going to be dry as toast. 
Well, John the Baptist comes on the scene. Now, what kind of world did John the Baptist come to minister in? What kind of world was Jesus born into? I, I ministered or, or spoke about a couple of these things on uh, at the Christmas Eve service. But there's some of this that just keeps rolling, on, on, oh, rolling over and over on the inside of me. And I can't get away from it. The 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament saw the world change. Daniel and Malachi, Zechariah, these were the last prophets of the Old Testament. And they ministered in a world where the Persians and the Babylonians were the rulers. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the Romans have come out of what looks to us as out of nowhere. And during that period of time, one of the things that's missed is about 300 and I think about 334 B.C. It was when Alexander the Great began his rule over the world. And his rule encompassed a greater portion of territory and people that he governed and ruled over than anybody, than any other nation, any other superpower known to man until that point in time. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing because every world ruler, if you'll allow me to use that term, whether it was the Babylonians or whether it was the Persians, whether it was the Greeks, whether it was the Romans, have always been violent overthrows. They've always been um, campaigns and operations that at, at the, 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 just the, the quickest glance, you'd have to say was the work of the devil. But God used those things where the devil was trying to dominate people and rule over them and govern them and, and, and oppress them. God used certain things out of these uh, world ruler situations to bring about things that would set the stage for the gospel. One of the greatest things was the Greek language because through the, um, the, the Greek domination through Alexander the Great and some of the generals that, that um, the poor generals that divided his territory at his death he died at uh, 34 years of age, something like that. Drank himself to death because there was no, there were no other people in no other lands, no other uh, countries to conquer. And uh, and his kingdom was split up four ways between the four generals, and and they started fighting among themselves, trying to uh, regain territory and and get more and and that kind of stuff. Well, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Greek language is the world's language. And it was one of the things that every scholar, every Bible scholar agrees was what God was waiting for. For the first time since Genesis 11, 1, the whole world was of one language and one speech. For the first time. Now, the way they got there wasn't a pleasant way to go. The domination of the Greeks and the, and the killings and the, uh, the oppression and, and so forth, nobody would say that was the work of God. But the remains and the results of the work of the devil was something God used to bring about his own plan, his own purposes. Now, in Jesus' day, and you're, this part you're going to know, in Jesus' day, there was the, the greatest rivalry among the religious people in, in Israel was the Pharisees versus the Sadducees. Anybody know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were about? I've heard these guys all my life, and, and it never made any sense to me. I never knew the difference between one and the other. 
except for one believed in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. But what are they fighting over? Where did they come from and that kind of stuff? Well, it, it comes down to the, to the history of Israel. And that is this. The Pharisees, and the word Pharisee means to separate. The Pharisees were wanting to maintain the Jewish traditions. The laws of Moses and keeping them very strict. And the, the more resistance they got from other groups and, and, uh, and the, t- the times as they progressed and, and so forth. The stricter and stricter and stricter they got. And Jesus had the harshest words of criticism and rebuke for the Pharisees, much more so than anybody else that he ever came in contact with. But they're attempting to separate themselves to the law of Moses. Now, they added to it, and they made it a burdensome thing where it wasn't intended to be and so forth. But their rivals were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic means they were progressive or liberal Jews that wanted to incorporate Greek culture into the laws of Moses to water them down, ease up, not be so strict about keeping everything the way that it was written in the beginning. That was the, the, uh, the rivalry or the conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, you need to realize that Jesus was operating in his earthly ministry in a Greek culture society, a Greek culture society. Most of the Old Testament verses that Jesus quotes are from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was uh, in 200 and something B.C., uh, was a a group of 70 Jewish historians, scholars, in Alexandria, uh, Greece. Uh, Well, I'm not sure where they were that did it, where it was done. But anyway, these 70 Jewish scholars took the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and translated them into the Greek language. Now, the reason they did that is so that the world could have access to the Jewish Bible. Because Greek was the language of the world. Jesus obviously knew this. Jesus assimilated into this because nearly everyone, there are a few exceptions, but only a few. Nearly every Old Testament scripture that Jesus quotes, he quotes the Greek translation of it. So the Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus' day. Now, some people will ask the question, why didn't God write the New Testament in Hebrew since he wrote the Old Testament or had it inspired it to be written in Hebrew? Why didn't he do that with the New Testament? Well, the answer is very simple. And that is, if it had been written, if the New Testament had been written in Hebrew, then first of all, it wouldn't have reached as wide an audience as it did by being written in the Greek language. In other words, the people that Jesus came to redeem, which was the whole world, wouldn't have had access to the truth of what belongs to him because of his sacrifice. Secondly, not everybody knew about the Jewish history and Jewish heritage and so forth. And although there are a few things in the New Testament that refer back to the Old Testament heritage, many more illustrations are used in the New Testament to try to convey spiritual thoughts and spiritual truth from the Greek culture of the day than from the Hebrew historical culture. So when Jesus says, upon this rock, talking about the knowledge of him being the son of God, upon this rock I will build my church, the word church along with all church Christian terminology, whatever you want to call it, along with every bit of the Christian terminology that was developed in the first century um, A.D., the first hundred years after Jesus was born and, and died on the cross, there was no glossary of Christian terms to, to draw from. 
And so in other words, if they're going to convey spiritual thoughts, they're going to have to use secular terms or else nobody would know what they're being, what they're, what's being spoken of or what's being talked about. So when Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church, if this word doesn't have meaning, then they're left clueless as to what he's talking about. And Jesus never left anybody clueless. Well, I guess I should qualify that. There were a lot of people that were clueless after Jesus spoke, but he spoke in simple terms for them to understand. And he was always there to clarify for his disciples. Notice the disciples didn't ask him, what's a church? What do you mean upon this rock you'll build your church? You'll build what? What's a church? They knew what a church was. Or they knew what the Greek word ecclesia that's translated church means. Now there's this word uh, uh, ecclesia, Greek word ecclesia, is used 120 times in the New Testament. And this is the first time. So every time from this point forward is an expansion of what Jesus talked about in the the term that Jesus himself used to talk about his people. Now, what is ecclesia? Well, the word ecclesia means uh, a group of people drawn out or separated unto a certain purpose. The name or the word ecclesia was common and well-known in the Greek society. These Jews, these disciples would know about the... the, um, Uh, the use of the Greek word ecclesia and what it meant. And here's what it meant. In Athens, there was a group of people, all Greek citizens, all distinguished, all prominent people that were selected by the rest of the group. But initially, they would invite other ones, prominent people into their, their group to discuss public policy, to create laws, to elect magistrates over the land. Basically, a representation of the population, the upper class of the population, that would operate in a ruling position in Greece. Now, they were not part of the government. The government had representatives that would speak to the ecclesia, But the ecclesia was kind of a a lay position, if you will, an unelected position, but hand-picked people made up of hand-picked distinguished citizens that would operate in such a way for the good of the people, the good of the population, according to their understanding. So when Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, he's talking about a special group of people that were called out, called out. Just like the Greeks would call out somebody, and it was a very honored thing to be a part of the Ecclesia in in Athens. I mean, if you were one of those people, you were considered to be the top of the top of the top. I mean, you had to be somebody to get in there. The word itself means those who are called and separated to a prestigious assembly. Well, what assembly is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his people. So when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's talking about an assembly that he himself, my church, that he himself will draw people into. Now, the circumstances upon which he uses this term was the setting that we know from uh, not only from historical documents, but also the ruins that are left today at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was kind of a mini mall for pagan worship, idol worship. There are many fountains, springs that run through the place, a beautiful place. And in the, carved into the side of the hill 
that's there. Great big tall hill. Are a number of different uh, porticos. And there were some things that if the, uh, the representation of the reconstruction of the, uh, what they think was there is accurate. Then there were even kiosks. I mean, you could literally go from one worshiping one idol to the next, you know, 10 or 12 feet over, uh, offering a sacrifice to the next idol and so forth. And a lot of people would just come and go down the row. There were, you know, 20 or 30 of these things that were all lined up in a row, carved in, many of them, most of them, carved into the, um, the hillside. And you can still see where the carvings were. You, there's not too many idols left. There's a couple of uh, ruins, but, um, but nothing that's, you know, preserved, been preserved over the time from then to now. But you can see where everything was. And there, there are all kinds of drawings and representations of what it looked like at the time Jesus was there and, and so forth. Well, this is the place that Jesus is. Jesus is in the place in Israel that represents the greatest collection of pagan worship in the land. And he asked, in the middle of the pagan idol mall, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Now, in this trip that we took to uh, uh, Ephesus, one of the places we went to that was in Ephesus in November, I was amazed. I've seen pictures of stuff, but until I saw it in person, I just had no concept of the idolatry of the city. I remember when Peter, uh, I mean, um, what's his name? Paul. When Paul was in, uh, in Athens in Mars Hill, we were scheduled to go into Athens, but the weather was such that we couldn't, well, no, it wasn't the weather that kept us out of there. It was the uh, port workers' strike that was taking place, and so they wouldn't let us dock, and so we couldn't go in and see the, the ruins of Athens. But I'm going to go see that one of these days. But um, when Paul saw the city given to idolatry, well, what that means is he walked down a certain street that there are still ruins and, and artifacts left there now where there were like 300 of these things lined up one after the other. It was a, it was a, uh, a bigger uh, street representation, bigger collection of idol worshipers and temples than, uh, than what there was at Caesarea Philippi by 10 maybe. And when he saw the city moved and given to idolatry, he wept in his heart. He, he was moved in his spirit. Well, we need to realize that was the, the norm for the day. That was the norm for the day. Now, it wasn't so prevalent in Israel. It wasn't like these things were in every city like they were all around the rest of the world. Because Israel was um, commanded not to worship idols. And those that were still trying to hold fast to the law of Moses would have rebelled. And the Romans had as much trouble with Israel, particularly Jerusalem, as the, the Greeks had had before and the Babylonians had had before them and so forth. Israel and Jerusalem particularly has, has always been a hotbed for rebellion against any foreign ruling or foreign power and so forth. So um, the Greeks, the Romans, were trying not to stir the pot by having these things, but because so many people were not followers of the law of Moses, they still had to have places where people could worship idols, which Caesarea Philippi was one of those. So Paul was moved in his spirit, grieved in his spirit, when he saw the city given to idolatry. Now, in the, here's the thing that, that the Lord's dealing with me about, and I don't know what, for what purpose yet. But here's something I need you to understand, and that is in the, in the center of, of pagan worship of idols 
in the center of demonic activity, that which represented the work of the devil more than any other place in all of Israel, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Peter answers. He says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was already dead. Now, I want you to see how ingrained Greek culture was in Israel. In order for Jesus to be John the Baptist, he's going to have to be reincarnated. In order for him to be Elijah, he's going to have to be reincarnated. In order for him to be Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, he's going to have to be reincarnated. Where did anybody get the idea of reincarnation? It's certainly not part of the Jewish heritage or history. It had to come from somewhere else, and and Greek mythology is rife with that kind of stuff. So when Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? What is it that people are talking about me? Peter's answer is very simply, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, some think that you're the Messiah because of the miracles. That's, That's not even a consideration. He said, some say you're one of these other guys that lived and died. And then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And then Peter answers, inspired of the Holy Ghost, and he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Now the word Peter is the word Petros in in the Greek. It means a large rock. Now, a large rock meaning the size that you could pick up and carry. So he says, your name is Petros, a large rock. But upon this rock, that word rock is a different word. It's the word Petra. It means a huge mountain-sized rock. So the comparison that he makes between Peter and the rock that he's going to build the church on is that Peter was like a pebble in comparison to it. So he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, Petros. And upon this rock, Petra, mountain-sized rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It probably would be worth mentioning here for those of you that aren't aware of, of the setting that Jesus is speaking this. At Caesarea Philippi, one of maybe the, the major most prominent uh, form of idol worship was uh, what was called the gates of hell. It's still there today, and there's this giant cavern. It's, it's different than it used to be because of uh, earthquakes, and it's changed the, the, the way that things operate. But it used to be that there was this giant opening, man, uh, uh, natural opening, cave-like opening in, uh, in the, the mountainside. And there used to be a, a, a giant pool of water Great big pool of water that had a whirlpool. It was a continuous whirlpool that was there. And so they would, um, people that were trying to appease whatever God that it represented, and I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't remember which one it was supposed to be, that, um, uh, that this thing uh, was dedicated to. But whatever uh, idol or, or God or whatever that they were trying to appease, they'd throw in an animal, sometimes even their children, into this whirlpool. And if the whirlpool um, returned the animal back to the one that threw it in, then it was considered to be an acceptable sacrifice. Well, you know as well as I do, nothing ever returned. 
And so the idea is you're supposed to give up some living creature, sacrifice some living creature to appease this God, and he's never appeased, which is kind of the way the devil works anyway. You know, he makes you think you've got to do things, but you can't ever do enough. So when Jesus, oh, that was called the gates of hell. That opening where the whirlpool was was called the gates of hell. And because it was the most prominent of all the, the many mall lineup of, of uh, idols and, and gods and temples and so forth, he said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church. I will build that group of called out ones, that assembly of called out ones specifically for the purpose of God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what do the gates of hell mean? We think of gates like there would be a giant gate that would open up. That's not what he's talking about. When he's talking about the gates of hell, he's talking about that which represents all of the devil's power. The greatest display of the devil's power in Israel. He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then notice the next thing that he says. Now, folks, I'm not sure that I made this point, but let me uh, kind of backtrack a little bit. The ecclesia, the assembly in Athens, was a ruling class. They were not considered to be common people at all. They were citizens of Athens or citizens of Greece. But they were not common people in any stretch of the imagination. You couldn't be a poor person and be part of this. You couldn't be just an average guy and be part of this assembly. You had to be somebody that had proven themselves through lifestyle, through wealth, through business, whatever the case might be. You had to be something that everybody knew about before you'd ever be considered to be invited. It was a ruling class of people. That's the, the, the word that Jesus uses for us, for believers, rulers. And that's the point he's trying to make. Upon this rock, the knowledge that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, I will call out a group of people that will have ruling power separated unto God's purposes. That's what church means. We don't think of it in those terms. We think of church as being a building and the people that come to the building and, and you know, the congregation that's there. That's not what Jesus meant when he said, I'll build my church. He said, I will build my ruling class of people that are called and separated under the purposes of God. And notice the next thing that he says. And I will give unto you, verse 19, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, folks, I... I really wish there wasn't such goofy teaching out there about binding and loosing. It'd make it a whole lot easier to get people to, to see the reality of what Jesus is trying to say if there weren't so many weird things out there. People are talking about binding the devil and loosing God. and That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. How do you bind a defeated foe? How do you loose God? To loose God would imply that he was bound up. Wouldn't it? Well, what could possibly bind up God? Well, I, like I said, I wish there wasn't some goofy teaching out there that, that has taken hold and taken root in some people's thoughts. But no matter what you've heard or what you haven't heard, we would all have to agree that when Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, those keys 
are identified as having power to allow or to forbid, which is what binding and loosing really means. Bind means to, for, to prohibit or forbid. Loose means to allow. And notice what he's saying. In the context of the secular word, ecclesia, the ruling class of Athens, which enacted laws and, and set forth laws and public policy that was carried out throughout all the Greek world. Much of that still in operation in Rome at the time Jesus says these things. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall forbid on earth shall be forbidden in heaven. And whatsoever you shall allow on earth shall be allowed in heaven. God intends for his people to rule here on the earth. Now, not rule over each other. Too many times people think of ruling as being ruling over people. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about ruling over the power of the devil. Remember the context and the setting that Jesus says these things. Jesus doesn't walk into the temple and say these things. He walks into the the pagan lineup of idol worship in Israel. The greatest collection of idols and temples to false gods in, uh, in the land of Israel. And it's in that setting that he says, I'll build my church. I'll build this group of people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That greatest display of Satan's power, that which everybody is afraid of, shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against it. One translation says it this way. Shall not hold out against it. which kind of paints the picture for us that the church is advancing and the devil's trying to hold the church back, which is an accurate picture according to what Jesus said. I will build, meaning expand, meaning add to, meaning increase my church. And the gates of hell shall not hold out against it. Folks, when the church starts getting a picture and a real understanding, a spiritual understanding of who we are, some things will change. Maybe not on a national level. Because there is not a church of America, for example. But there is a church here in this city. And there's a church in the neighboring city. Do you understand what I mean by that? We can change things around us. We, not be, we may not be able to change things in somebody else's territory where we don't live, but we can sure control some things here. We can sure forbid and hold back the work of the devil where we are. That's what Jesus is saying. And I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, notice it starts on earth. Heaven backs up what starts on earth. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We've got a lot more authority here on the earth than we give ourselves credit for. But I believe we're coming into a day 
where the light of God's word will shine in our hearts, will illuminate our minds to the truth of who we are, and the greatness of the power of the name of Jesus has been given to us. And we shall stand up, rise up and stand in that place of authority, utilizing the keys of the kingdom of heaven to forbid the attempts of the enemy, to forestall the plan of God, to withhold the precious fruit of the earth. And heaven will stand and rejoice that the church is exercising the authority given to it by the risen Savior, Jesus, our Lord. That's what I believe. I believe there are things that, that need to be done. And I, I, I have a sense that we're close to them. I, I don't know what that means other than just, well, that's the best way I know to say it. But I have a sense that we're close to some things that are going to spark a fire. And I don't just mean here in our church. I, I certainly want it to be here in our church. But I'm talking about on a bigger scale. I believe there are some things that God's going to do that's going to light a fire. And when the fire begins to burn, it'll get hotter and hotter and hotter. And it'll create a spiritual momentum that sweeps certain people into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how it's going to be. I could, I could see the, the, the wisdom of God in a couple of different ways, to be honest with you. I can see it being a short, white hot flame where it's a quick work done, done almost overnight. But I can also see the wisdom of God for it to be a fire that begins to burn and burns hotter and hotter and hotter for decades. It doesn't matter to me which way it goes. But I do know this, and this is something the Lord's had me praying about for years. But I do know this. I know it's important for prophets to be raised up in the last days. To speak to kings and the nations in our day, even as in days of old. See, in the old times, the prophet would be sent by God to speak to the king. And, and he'd say things like, you know, uh, it's not going to rain till I say so. Wouldn't that blow the climate change debate all up? Well, what has changed? Why would that not take place today? There were times where the prophet went to the king and said, you know, you're just the king. Meaning the representatives of God hold a much higher place of stature and certainly power than government officials, kings, rulers, that think they're so great and fancy themselves to be men of stature. Well, I can see that happening nowadays. Can't you? And why wouldn't it? God did it in days of old just to show that he was God and there was still a God in Israel. Why wouldn't he do it among his people to whom he's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven? I don't know, maybe it's because of, or maybe it's partly because of the time that I spent with Brother Hagin, who stood in the prophet's ministry. Folks, I've got to tell you, 
if there's a prophet in the land, talking about in America, I don't know who he is. I know a lot of people that say they are. And that's always been the case. One of the things that Brother Hagin shied away from the prophet's ministry about after the Lord dealt with him about it is because he said he didn't want to be associated and tied in with these kooks. There's all kinds of things being done, people doing things and calling themselves prophets and so forth. Well, you see a lot of that nowadays. You see a lot of people saying things, prophesying so-called things by the Spirit of the Lord that it doesn't even take an unction from God to see that. I mean, for example, I saw I got a, an email, and I don't know how I got on this guy's email. I'm not on there anymore. But I got on this guy's email, and his, his prophecy, he said the Spirit of the Lord told him that open borders would be a bad thing for America. You don't even have to be saved to know that. And I thought to myself, dear Lord, if that's what the prophet's ministry has come down to in our modern day, we're in trouble. I guess I'm spoiled because I saw a real prophet. I had experience with and in contact with somebody that really was used of God. And spoke when God spoke to him and stayed quiet when he didn't. I'm not saying the prophet's ministry is more necessary or more needful in the last days than any of the other ministries. But boy, God really has got me stirred up about that one. We need somebody to speak to kings and nations. Like Elijah and Elisha did. Like Daniel and Ezekiel. Like Moses. I believe those things are coming. I believe that's when the Bible talks about the precious fruit of the earth being brought in only by the early in the latter rain, the moving of the Holy Ghost. Doesn't that have to be? Wouldn't that have to include all of the manifestations of the Spirit and the operation of all the ministry gifts? How could we call it the moving of the Holy Ghost if it's not everything in that, that the Holy Ghost has got? I'm not saying that by the Spirit of the Lord. It's not something that God has told me to, to say. It just seems to make sense, doesn't it? I mean, God did give us brains. He did give us understanding from the Word. Folks, we're coming to a time when the power of God will be such that people will wonder at what happened they'll question whether they really saw what they just saw I like what Brother Hagin used to say about it when it comes to signs and wonders people used to ask him well, what are signs and wonders and he said well a wonder is something that makes you wonder and that's exactly what happened in Jesus' day Jesus would heal the sick and people would be left walk away thinking well man that happened so fast and that didn't work the way that I thought miracles would work did that really even happen? Imagine if the church woke up worldwide. Imagine if the church realized that we are these called and separated, 
called out and separated unto the purpose of God to, for the purpose of ruling over the devil's operations, of putting a stop to the work of the devil in our towns and in our cities. What would happen if the church, what would happen if just half of the church worldwide woke up to that reality? seems to me we'd get people saved in a heartbeat. We'd get this work done in a, in a real short period of time. Now part of me, the skeptical part of me, says you can't expect people to wake up like that. And except for God doing something on his own, I think that's true. I mean, what's going to wake people up? You got the church voting for political parties that support abortion and the selling of baby parts and gay marriage. You got Christians that are standing up and voting for that stuff. What would it take to wake somebody up like that? I mean, how asleep do you have to be to operate in that that vein? See, I'm amazed that people aren't awake already. And if the day that we're living in in the, the decline of our society, if the protection of Islam becomes the major point of the news, when Islamic jihadists are killing Christians, then what's it going to take to wake people up? For me, the answer comes down to one thing. Natural events aren't going to wake anybody up. Because if natural events were going to wake the church up, the church would be awake already. Well, if it's not a natural event or a series of natural events that does the job, then what will do it? It's got to be something that the Holy Ghost lights. It's got to be a fire that the Holy Ghost himself can light, and only he can light. Folks, it's more important for us to ask of the Lord reign in the time of the latter rain than ever before. I don't know why the Lord's dealing with me about this like this. I don't know if it's because we're entering into something. I don't know if it's because we're coming into a new year. I don't know. But the time's at hand. The time is at hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege to live in this day and this hour. Father, we would be remiss to close this service without acting in obedience to what you told us to do. You said in Zechariah 10.1, ask of you rain in the time of the latter rain. We believe this is the time, Lord. You said that you would cause bright clouds, a manifestation of your presence, even as the glory cloud in Solomon's temple. 
and a demonstration of your power, even as in the early days of the church. You said you'd give us showers of rain. That must include manifestations of the Spirit, as identified in the New Testament. That must mean revelation gifts, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. That must mean utterance gifts, diversities of tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy. And it must include power gifts, working of miracles, gifts of healings, and the gift of faith, special faith in operation. You said you'd do that, Father. You said you'd give us showers of rain and that you'd bring everyone grass in the field. We understand that to be the precious fruit of the earth. People want into the kingdom of God. So, Father, we thank you for signs and wonders and miracles in these last days. Light a fire in us, Lord. Do what you need to. Change us. Show us how to make the adjustments that are necessary. Folks, we're, Father, we're not asking you for, to show us an easy path. We're asking you to show us the path that brings us to victory. Show us the commitment that we need to make, the consecration and dedication that's necessary. Because, Father, our greatest desire, the desire that's burning within us, is to see your power and your glory displayed. The further and further we go, Lord, the more we see that this world has little to offer. But, oh, Lord Jesus, you said that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of your glory. Manifest your glory in such a way that the whole earth knows. Manifest your power in such a way that the news media has to recognize. Manifest yourself in such a way that lives are transformed. Satan, we serve you notice. We are the church of the living God. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is alive and risen and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's given unto us the keys of the kingdom. We may not know everything we need to know about the use thereof, but we'll learn. And we will exercise that power that's given unto us to put a stop to your power. To hinder the advance of evil. In Jesus' name. And we'll set free those that you've had bound. In the name of Jesus. We'll break the chains of addiction. And sickness and disease. And depression. Over those that have been under your control and domination we shall loose them 
in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for these last days. Perilous times for sure, but times of the glory of God. We ask, Father, that they would be days of heaven on earth. When the powers of heaven and the will of the Father in heaven are manifested here on this earth for all to see and for all to receive who will the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ spark that fire Father set us on fire Lord so that the world can watch us burn we ask in the precious and holy name of Jesus Amen. 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 Well, I don't know how you stop a service like this. I guess you just quit. There's a lot more for us to, uh, to see and to know and to learn. Perhaps the most important thing for us is to realize the time that we live. We're too close to the end to play at church, folks. We're too close to the end to be bound up with earthly things. But instead, we need to be mindful of the things that Jesus has given to us. We need to set our affection on things above and not on the earth. Seems like Week by week, I care less and less about this earth and what's going on here and what it has to offer. I can only assume that that's a spiritual hunger that draws us to the things of God. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.